If you happen to bring the scriptures with you, the Bible, we are going to be looking at a series of chapters in Exodus, uh, beginning in chapter 25, back up a little bit actually into 24, but um, if you brought the book with you, I encourage you to open it, and if, uh, if I could just add on to what was said earlier, I'm just deeply grateful, especially this week for um, those who serve not only in the military, but law enforcement. Um, We were coming back from men's retreat last week, uh, Sunday, and we had just finished lunch at a little Mexican restaurant, and you all were finishing up worship here when the news came out, and I'm sure you probably found out 12, 31 o'clock, but um, that down in Texas, you know, in in an environment very similar to this, uh, our brothers and sisters, our family members, um, our eternal family was was killed, and I, I, I just, it really didn't sink in for me until this morning. Um, I got here and I just thought, you know, I see all of you and your faces and some of you have Starbucks and, you know, we experience different levels of life together, baptisms and worship and Thanksgiving feasts and and all of a sudden to be struggling this week with the fact that your church is half the size is um, just kind of overwhelming this morning. And um, I don't know how you're processing all of this, but um, the the brutal fact is, is that the more we see our our culture melt into kind of a morass of lawlessness, the more, unfortunately, we can expect things like this to happen. I mean, it seems like every week there's something in the news. Um, the last couple of months have been pretty brutal um, for our, 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 our country. And uh, at the same time, we have to, uh, I should back up and say, you know, someone has asked me in relation to that, um, do we have security protocols here at church with regards to things like that? And, on the one hand, you have to say there's no way you can fully and completely prepare for something like that. At the same time, you know, our bringing our children from the building that's outlying here to my right and your left into this main building was an attempt to provide a secure environment for our students. And um, without going into detail, um, we have the, the, the blessing, the grace of having two law enforcement officers on our um, Council of Elders. And let me just say, without going into any detail, a person came in to do that, I don't think they'd make it very far. But just so you know, um, at the end of the day, we have to trust a sovereign king and his protection. That's ultimately where our confidence has to be. And um, so I, I, I hope that this message will actually speak to that end uh, because, uh, as you well know, it's kind of like preaching to the choir. They're saying the sky is blue or grass is green. Um, there are just all kinds of surprises in this life, some very positive and some um, very negative. And during those times, you know, God has actually equipped us. I mean, the church has made it through some horrible times and some some systematic persecutions in Rome, and we've made it through fascism and communism. And, you know, the fact of the matter is um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And um, just just to remember that. But, you know, God equips us. He gives us... Like gifts to help us on our way so that we, we, we're not tossed to and fro and freaking out and panicking and, you know, grabbing guns, gas, and gold and running to the hills. Um, and that, that, that's, that's what I want to call like big thoughts that are based on big truths, like big thoughts, big truths. And, and I want to look at two of those this morning. And, and the, just to kind of relay how important it is to have big thoughts based on big truths. You know, we, we tend as people to be uh, bubble thinkers, right? And what I mean by bubble is like, 
we've talked about what it means, or you've heard maybe the expression, well, they live in a bubble. You know, when your, your perspective on life is, is limited by your own perspective or your own experience. You remember what high school like, was like, like living in the bubble of high school, your biggest world problems, or is somebody going to invite me to the Sadie Hawkins dance, which wasn't an issue for me because I wasn't allowed to dance, or whether the zit on your forehead would actually go away before the first day of school, or um, whether you pass your chemistry test. That, those were like the big world problems that got you all anxious. And you become an adult and you realize, man, that was nothing. I was living in such a bubble that didn't correspond to that, the greater reality. But the truth is, we as adults have bubbles too that are just bigger, right? Wondering, am I going to be able to pay the rent next month? Will my business take off? How am I going to fix my car? Are my children going to be okay? And, and just a whole litany of things that grab our focus, these circumstances of life. And, and as we focus our attention on those things, we become like bubble thinkers. We, we're, we're caught in the, the, the circumstances of life. And, and when that's the case, we just, we're really emotionally in our hearts and affections are kind of driven all over the place. And that's where, you know, the scripture and God has given to us gifts of truth that, that will have the capacity to lift us up, like out of the bubble, to see things from a grand perspective. And from that grand perspective, to find our confidence and find our peace and find our joy in the big truths. And so that's really what I want to do is concentrate on two big thoughts that I, I pray the Spirit will use in your life and heart to, to elevate you out of just a a limited bubble perspective on your circumstances. We've been following the people of Israel and, and um, reading between the lines and actually explicitly reading the lines. I think they were caught in their circumstances. Um, they're out in the desert. If you've been following along, God has delivered them out of, out of Egypt from slavery, from the clutches of Pharaoh. He has taken them through the Red Sea. He has established a covenant relationship with them telling them how you should live, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments. Now they're in the desert, and you hear them constantly complaining, like they're looking at the desert. Moonscape. No pine trees, no oak trees, no fruit trees. There's a, a limited water, maybe just a, a cup left in your canteen. They're eating the same thing over and over again, and all they can see is their lack, and as a result, they complain, they grumble, and at points they even rebel. And that's what happens when you are confined to the bubble, that is small thoughts. But God does something in these chapters we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to look at seven, believe it or not. We're going to look at it from a very high view, that is aerial view, um, but seven chapters that I think give to us these big thoughts, these big truths that are supposed to carry us on our way. And um, just so you know, to prepare you, like, if you've ever read through the book of Exodus, you know that the first half of it's kind of like an action movie. It's, like, it's awesome. It's easy to read. Lots of action. There's, you know, Moses and Pharaoh, and there's storms, and there's hail, and there's an angel of death, and there's conquest, and there's, you know, opening waters and seas and people passing through, and there's fires, and it's just, it's awesome. It's like an action movie. But then you get to the middle of Exodus, and it kind of feels like you're slogging through a swamp. As you go from an action adventure to one of those really boring British films, it's all about dialogue, right? And just to be honest, I, 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 like, I like British films with lots of dialogue. I watched all of Downton Abbey. That's just, you know, how it works. 
But this is where like transitioning into Downton Abbey. It's just all about dialogue. And, and you can easily read this and go, oh, man. Because basically what the Lord's going to do is he's going to tell Moses how to build a tent or a tabernacle. And he's going to spend seven chapters doing it, like telling them what's supposed to be in it, how it's supposed to be made, and the priests that were supposed to minister into it. Seven chapters. And mind you, Moses doesn't have a typewriter. He's, he's like, you know, ancient writing implement on vellum or some kind of papyrus. Like he's writing this out by hand. So why spend like seven what might seem like boring chapters talking about this tent? And I have to be honest, man, when I've read this through the years, it's like, oh, here we go. Getting lost in why did he choose that particular wood or why is it goat skin that's on, the, on this, you know? And you get kind of bogged down in the, in the weeds. And I have to tell you, if you look at it as a whole, like all seven of these chapters, if you look at it from, as a whole, it's something beautiful and magnificent comes out. And, and I hope to show it to you, and, and maybe in the future you'll go, wow, this is, these are some amazing chapters, even though, you know, there's a lot of detail. Well, I believe this, 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 these seven chapters that teach us about this thing called the, the tabernacle or the tent, it's God's design that he's given to uh, Moses, um, is going to teach us about God on the one hand, that's the one big thought, and the second is about the future. Both of those things are expressed in this um, tent that Moses is supposed to make. That is, it's supposed to represent and teach the people truth about who God is and about their future. The first big truth, uh, the, the one about God. In order to understand um, this truth, I need to back up to the end of chapter 24, and I want you to pay attention to the location, the place, the where um, this speech takes place. That is, spatially in terms of elevation. The Lord tells Moses, come up on top of a mountain, and Moses obeys. That's where we pick up in verse 15 of chapter 24. It says, then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord, or glory of Yahweh, um, dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of of Israel. So Moses is invited, he's commanded to come up on top of the mountain. That's the location, up on top of the mountain. The people of Israel were told to stay back. They weren't even supposed to touch the mountain or they'd die. So there is this distance between where God's dwelling is up on top of the mountain and where the people of Israel are down on the valley floor. As there is separation, that has to be kept in mind. So then up on top of this mountain, disconnected and distanced from the people, the Lord says, listen, I want you to build me a tent, a tabernacle. And somewhere in the, not somewhere, but in chapter 29 of this long description about the tent, he tells us what it's for. Like, what's the grand idea? Why spend seven chapters and why build this elaborate, ornate tent or tabernacle? Again, paying attention to the place and the location Verse 43 of chapter 29, you get the sense of, like, what's this all about? This is the heart of it. The Lord says, there, that is there in this tent or in this tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar 
Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to service, uh, serve me as priests. And here it is. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Chapter 24, he's up on top of the mountain. If you will, elevated above his people. But he's saying, I want you to build me a tent so that I can descend and I can be not above, but I can be among my people. God is laying plans not to remain distant, but to, to inhabit a place with his people, among his people. That's, that's the idea of divine accommodation, of God descending and coming down and being with his people. Or, what we like to say at Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. You should notice this is a pattern in biblical history of God descending to be with and among his people. And that should speak volumes to you about, about the, the choice and the heart of who God is for his people. And mind you, the people that he's coming down to dwell among are not very grateful, right? They're the complainers, the whiners, and the rebels. But God made a choice to come down. And that, that instructs us, that teaches us something about the heart of God, namely his graciousness, his mercy, and his love to place himself with his people. Right? And that's, that's the truth that comes out of this, teaching us about the character of God, that the tabernacle is a symbol of God's loving and holy presence with his people. And I chose those two words, loving and holy, intentionally, because both aspects uh, are explicitly um, envisioned in this, this picture. I mean, the fact that this is an expression of God's love for his people should be obvious. I mean, for God Almighty, the devouring fire who's up on top of the mountain to make a choice to come down and live amongst his people in a tent, since some of you wouldn't even come to family camp because you had a tent, right? Not going to tent. Well, listen, God Almighty, who's Whose, whose presence can't be confined by the entire universe, made a choice to dwell or inhabit a tent in the desert with his people. That's the heart of God to be with his people. But if you read through it, you realize that, that as, he, as the Lord lays out the design and the furniture and how it's supposed to be built, you realize that almost all of it's relational in one sense or another. So, just a, a couple examples. I told you we were going to do this high level, and I'll just put these all on there. The Ark of the Covenant. You know, Indiana Jones and all that stuff, right? It's the mercy seat. It's the place where God dispenses mercy. And it's also, according to chapter 25, verse 22, the place where he would meet with Moses, the place where he would speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the Israel people. It's a place of communication. It's a place where God dispenses his mercy when the priest would come in once a year during, during Yom Kippur and offer blood on the mercy seat. It's, it's a place of communication. It's, it's relational. Or the, the, the showbread, the table for the bread. God doesn't have a stomach. He doesn't have organs. He doesn't need food. But he says, I want a table there. And I want you to put bread on it. The bread of the presence, of my presence. And the priests would actually take that bread and then they would eat the bread. And the symbolism is rich. It's the idea that God is saying by way of symbol, my heart, my heart is to share food with my people. My heart is to sit around a table 
and share it as family. My heart is to befriend and include sinful people in my family. That's around a table. It's, it's relational. It's rich with idea of God's love for his people or the menorah. God doesn't need light to see, but he has this menorah, a lampstand, and to give light and to be a symbol of light or the altar. He provides the altar so that people could come meet with him by way of blood sacrifices. God is making himself accessible for his people. That's, that's his love for us. It's, that's what it's meant to communicate is his I am choosing to come down out of heaven and onto earth, Emmanuel, God with you. That's, that's been God's heart all the way along, and that should sound not vaguely, but very familiar. But there's another side to it. Obviously, this tabernacle is an expression of God's love, a desire to be with his people, among his people, without diminishing his supremacy by any stretch of the imagination. But there's another side to it, and that is also expresses his holiness. That is, God is making his presence available and accessible on planet Earth to his people, but on his own terms. That is, he is a consuming fire. He is holy. And one thing I know about the Lord from the scripture that's found from beginning to end is that sinful man and holy God cannot cohabitate directly. Otherwise, we vaporize like space dust. We can't exist directly in the presence of a holy God, which is why he gave us this, this way of accessing him that protects us. Some people think this tabernacle is meant to separate, and in, in one sense, I suppose it was. But the first half, you know, what we just looked at coming down off the mountain, it's a desire to be with, to be communal. But there is a sense in which the tabernacle was created to create a healthy sense of separation. Otherwise, we would be consumed. Or to use an analogy, and this is an impersonal one, but, you know, we, we have uh, nuclear reactors. We have them on ships. We have them on subs. And we have them in California still. And it has tremendous power to um, propel, to turn on power, lights. But it has to be put in such a form that we are shielded from radioactive material and the radiation that it causes. And so it has to be carefully shielded. Otherwise, we die. God saw fit to create a tabernacle that lovingly shields us from direct exposure to his holiness. Otherwise, we die. And that's what the tabernacle expresses on a number of, of, of points. It's like, you know, his glory is described as a devouring fire, and fire is a constant synonym or image of, of God's holy character. It consumes. We've had a, a brush with, well, not just a brush. We've had some experience with fire lately and what it can consume in a rather short period of time, and at points can't even be stopped. Um, that he needed a veil to separate the holy place where he would sit on the mercy seat and the rest of the tabernacle. That's verse 33 of chapter 26. Or even the priests had to wear special undergarments to cover their naked flesh, and nakedness in the Bible is often associated with guilt and sin, as in the Garden of Eden. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and all of this so forth. They had to wash themselves, they had to prepare themselves carefully, all of it um, to awaken, to reinforce the sense that the God that we worship is holy, and he is not to be approached flippantly or lightly. 
He has made a way for us to access him that shields us from the brilliance of his holiness. So you have, this God has made himself, it expresses both love, but also holiness. And if I may digress for a moment, because I think it's, it's worth just kind of defining the idea of holiness, of God. Um, there is one ap- attribute of God's character that is given in triplicate in the scripture, and it's not love. Nowhere does it say, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. Or mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord God Almighty. Or grace, grace, grace is the Lord God Almighty. Now, without those three things, there is no gospel and there is good news. But there is one character attribute of God that is given in triplicate at least twice, and that is the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. It's holiness. It's part of what defines his glory and who he is and his greatness. It's what causes fear and trepidation in a good sense for God's people. So what is it? It's a construct of it, at least three things, but I'm only going to look at three. Just as a brief tri- digression, I think it's worthy of, of pausing. The holiness of God, the first part of that construct is, it means he is utterly and completely separate, or I like the word utterly unique. That is to say, God is in a category all by himself. There's nothing that compares to him, not even close. Like when, when we, we have a, like a chili cook-off or we have a salsa cook-off, you know, everybody brings their salsas and their chili, and I have, I have opinions as to which one is the best. But anyway, um, chili and salsa, and everybody brings their, their, their chili and salsa that's varied, but it's all kind of the same. It includes certain things that are the same, right? And then you pick the best one out of the many. There's a lot of things in the category of salsa, a lot of things in the category of chili. When it comes to God, he's in the category all by himself. He can't be compared to anything. Or as A.W. Tozer said, he is wholly other than. He's outside of any other category. Or like we sang, there is no rival, there's no comparison. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25 says it this way, and it's the voice of the Lord speaking through Isaiah. He says, he says to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Who are you going to compare me to? And the implied answer is nothing. There's nothing in creation that you can compare God to. Not any other God or deity. He stands alone in a category all by himself. That's part of his holiness. His utter, complete separateness, his uniqueness. But connected with that is his his infinite power. That's part of it. Because in that same passage in Isaiah chapter 40... To whom then will you compare me? There's this uniqueness that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And he points out the infiniteness of his power that gave birth to the universe. It's like, that's who I am. Utterly unique, infinite in power. And the last piece of it is is absolute moral purity. There is no stain. There is no darkness in him. There is no twistedness in his character. He's not capricious. He's not impulsive. He is perfectly and morally pure all the time throughout all eternity. Now that last one, unfortunately, we tend to feminize the idea of, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, um, of purity. When we think of purity or innocence, we often, it often carries a connotation of vulnerability and weakness. Like we think of children as innocent. Or we may say that that, that woman is a, is, a, is a pure virgin, like the Bible talks about Mary. 
And both of those things, in terms of purity, tend to convey or connote a sense of, well, they're also vulnerable and they're also frail. And that is not true of the moral purity of God. Like, God's moral purity is infinite in its power. It is, it is, it is the most deadly thing in the universe when sin is exposed to it, right? Um, you'd have a better chance flying a, a spaceship through the sun and surviving than lasting one microsecond in the direct presence of God's holiness. Um, they talked about when the eclipse happened that even welding helmets weren't adequate to shield you from the brilliant rays of the sun. And yet, we're told that the angels themselves have to cover their eyes from the presence of the Holy One of Israel. That's, I don't know that the Bible, it, it, you can sense in the language that it's grasping at talking about things like a consuming fire. Who God is in, in all of his brilliant greatness and holiness. The, any exposure to it on the way of, by the way of brokenness or sin, whatever sinful or broken will be utterly and completely consumed. Even Revelation 20 tells us that from the presence of the one who sits on the great white throne, earth and sky flood away or melted. Now, something that has to be, like, recaptured. We, we tend to focus a lot on God's love and grace, which we should. You can't overemphasize it, but you can underemphasize holiness. That we're talking about a holy God here. We're talking a, uh, about a God that makes the universe tremble. Or I, I like the way that Martin Luther talks about how one single little word out of the mouth of God can bring Satan down in a second. Like, the fact that there's evil in the world is not a, a reflection of God's impotence or his lack of power or holiness or glory. It's rather God is being patient, and at the right time, at the right place, by the breath of his mouth will consume evil. Like, you have to recapture a sense of that. And, and that the, the tabernacle is meant to be a, like an expression of that. It's like, man, God loves us, but you don't want to mess around with the Lord. Because he is infinitely power, utterly and completely unique, and he is pure. And how much that, that should have encouraged the people of Israel. It's like, man, look, we got the tabernacle. God's with us. He's powerful. And you might say, well, Dan, we don't have the tabernacle. To which we'd have to say, yeah, but we have something better than the tabernacle. Remember on the day in which Jesus gave up his life and his final breath is, and we actually sang it, it's in the lyrics of the song, the veil of the temple or the tabernacle was ripped. We were given access by the true blood, by the true priests, offering it in the true temple. That's the, that's the explicit teaching of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That God purposed all the time to have the fullness of his presence dwell bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. That the tabernacle was a shadow and Jesus is the substance. That he is the once-for-all sacrifice by the once-for-all priest in the once-for-all temple. So while they may have had the tabernacle, we have 
Christ, who adequately and eternally shields us and makes us capable of experiencing God's holiness without being pulverized. They had the tabernacle, we cling and we hold on to Christ, who is the fullness of God who dwells in us. And get this, take it a step further. Not only because of what Jesus did in his atonement and his sacrifice is his spirit or his the presence of God with us, but there's an important little prepositional change that's magnificent, and that is not only is his presence in us, his holy loving presence, excuse me, I just blew that, holy presence with, one preposition, but in us. I mean, the very thought that the devouring fire of God's presence and his love would inhabit the human heart is nothing less than mind-blowing. Now, you might say, yeah, but I don't feel it. You don't feel your liver either most of the time, or your kidneys, or your heart, or your spleen. doesn't mean they're not there. The simple fact that you don't feel it doesn't diminish the truth that it's true. And to get your head and your heart around the fact that, yeah, in me, if you're a true believer and you've confessed and you believed in the cross, in me resides the holy fire of God's presence. You, you know what that should do? That should, on the one hand, it should sober us like, wait a second. Like the, the devouring fire lives within me and to live in a manner that is circumspect and careful and not glib or flippant when it comes to our relationship with God. But at the same time, man, Almighty God has chosen by way of Jesus Christ to live in me all the time. There's not a single second where he's not with or in me. That ought to give us a, maybe just a little sense of courage, a little, just to believe the truth. If God's presence in the holy temple is, is you. Here's one of, that's, that's big thinking, that's big truth, that's big thought. Is God is with and in us, he is infinitely holy, and he loves us. That's one truth. Rise you out, raise you out of the bubble mentality. But there's one more, and it's going to be shorter for sake of time. And that is this. The tabernacle was also a symbol of Eden and creation. That is, it was, it was prophetic. God gave it to them as a signpost of what was to come. It's not just a, an expression of God's loving, holy presence, but it was also like a marker to say, this is where we're going. I mean, there's so much detail given to the different parts of this tabernacle that, that we easily miss unless we read it through the lens and the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2 and the accounts of creation. That is, this section, these seven chapters are masterfully written through the lens of creation, through the, through the lens of Genesis 1 and 2. For example, here are some, some little indicators. The lampstand of pure gold. How is it supposed to be made? As the lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers, there's flowers, shall be of one piece with it, and there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms. It's like the idea of gold and gems is present in Gen Genesis chapter 2, and what is, the, what, is, what is Eden populated with but, 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 the, but like, like fruit trees? And here in this tabernacle, God wants symbols of fruit trees, of almond trees, gold, jewels. 
or the curtains. You know, in, in, in the Garden of, of Eden, you had just a, uh, cherubim that were protectors of the, of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And here in the tabernacle, you have the cherubim who are guardians of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of God. And, and they're explicitly told you need to embroider these into, into the fabric of this tent. Is this, is this supposed to be a reminder of Eden? This is where God dwelt with man in perfection. This is the holy space that's like Eden where God dwells on earth. That's what it's supposed to convey. It's like in there, in the holy of holies, that's Eden. In the tabernacle. Or, and this is, again, I'm just amazed by the, by, by the literary masterpiece that the Bible is. But in these seven chapters, you have seven times the phrase, and the Lord said which is a direct parallel to Genesis 1, where it says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, seven times in Genesis 1, and creation springs into existence. And here seven times in talking about the tabernacle, it says, and the Lord said. I think the parallel is unmistakable. God is recreating. This is a symbol of recreation. So what is it supposed to teach? What is it supposed to say? Well, I think it's supposed to say, listen, this is the Lord. I'm speaking, paraphrasing. I am reclaiming Eden. I am reclaiming planet Earth for myself. And I am going to recreate her. And this is just a symbol of what I'm going to do. That church is our hope. And the, the text that was read at the very beginning is the final conclusion at the end of the Bible when in fact God inhabits planet Earth and the entirety of creation is filled with his glory as if the entire creation becomes the holy place, the most holy place. And that is, that is, that is their hope. It is that, all right, God, in this tabernacle, there's like God is saying, I'm taking you home. I am going to be repair what has been lost. I am going to mend what has been broken. I am going to banish evil, and I am going to replace it with a perfectly full, exhaustively good place with my presence back with you so that you'll walk with me. That's the hope that it was supposed to, to convey. And that's, that's a big truth. That's, that's a big thought. It's like this not only declares to us who God is for us, with us, and in us, but it also says this is where we're going. Like, and no one can take that away from us if we're a believer. It's, it's our hope. And a hope that is realized once again, because we might say, well, we don't have the tabernacle anymore, but yeah, we have something better. Because on the basis of what Christ has done, the resurrection has already begun. He has awakened hearts to himself. He has put his presence in us so that Paul could say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he already is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And we simply wait the final return of our Lord who will say new and he will recreate all things. That's what we look forward to. And that is, that is, that is the big truth. That is the big thought. That we have to like keep in our minds, church, is not allow ourselves to like sink back into the bubble mentality of, oh man, look what's going on. Politics, who can deal with all this stuff? And go, wait. Let's look at the tabernacle. Let's look at Christ, who is the fullness of God, who has made it 
possible for us to be in full and complete access to the Father who is taking us home. And that I can live by. You know, I thought about the question that some might ask with regards to last Sunday. You know, where was the tabernacle? Where was Christ? Where was the dwelling place of the Lord when that guy marched into the sanctuary and, and took the life of the lambs, took the life of God's people? From one vantage point, someone could become disillusioned and come to the conclusion God wasn't there. But I think the Bible would scream out loud, oh yeah, he was. He was there. The Lord was present. As he was present when Stephen was being stoned in Acts, as he was present when, God, uh, when Paul, the Apostle Paul, had his head chopped from his body, or when the Apostle Peter was, was crucified upside down, he was there. Because in that moment, while it looked from our side of the fence as something heinously evil, and it was, from God's side, he's like, now it's time to take you home. Like the people that were lost, and then granted, there are grieving people left behind. That moment was the moment of entry into glory and to be present with the Lord and wait the final installment of salvation. And to recognize, every one of you recognize this. And so when it comes to the true Christian, we never lose. If you're a follower of Jesus, we never lose lose. Never. You can do whatever you want to. We've, we've lasted through communism. You've lasted through fascism. And even at the end of the day, we're told that by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, we conquer. Even when we die, you don't lose. You never lose because the presence of God is always with you and in you. And he is taking us home. And those are the thoughts. Those are the beliefs those are the big thoughts and the truths that we have to hold on to. Right? And I'm telling you, on my, for, very personally for me, I wake up on Sunday, excuse me, I wake up on Monday morning and my first go-to text that I go to and I think about and meditate on almost every week is Revelation 21 because I have to be reminded of this truth. I have a home, God's taken me there, and no one can take it from me. And another truth on Tuesday and Thursday from Ephesians chapter 2 saying, and God loves me, I have access to him because of what Christ has done through his blood. Both truths, I need them. You do too. Every day. Otherwise you sink. And when you do, you know what makes it wonderful is that I actually can forgive people a little easier. Um, I'm a little more patient because I've risen out of the bubble. Um, I'm not as frustrated or angry by increases in gas taxes that make diesel more expensive than it was two weeks ago. Or the politics. Like, wait, I mean, all that stuff has its place. Mostly frustrating, but it's no man. I have a God who's with me, and I have a God who's taking me home. We have a God who's with us, and we have a God who's taking us home. And to live fully embracing those two truths. Can I get a little amen out of that? One kind of thing? Let me pray for us. Lord, you have determined the times and the seasons, and you have set restraints and boundaries for the, 
the times of creation and, and the moments in history where you move, the moment in history yet to come where you will bring everything to its conclusion. And Lord, we don't know what day we're living in, whether we are headed into final hours or final weeks or months or we're way off. We don't know because you haven't told us. But we, Lord, want to be ready and we want to be rooted and we want to be grounded in your truth, trusting in you as the God who has saved us, who loves us, who dwells with us, who dwells in us and promises to come one day and take us home. Let us please believe these things. Let us hold them close to our hearts, close to our chest, close to our souls that we might rise above the provincial thinking of circumstances and live as people of joy and freedom and courage because of what you have done and who you are for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.